BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, college students, are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. What we required was simply a maintenance, not decline, but but just making sure we're staying at the same rate, stability in each of the... All right, Jamie, we got to let you go. Sorry. <laughs> oh, come on. I really Sorry, like I got that a quiche in the oven now. We had stuff to do it. <laughs> busy people how's it going everybody we are live live stream chat pat rod and row how's it going feel free to weigh in with your comments thoughts suggestions complaints queries whatever your ben Jarofsky show for tuesday june 16th is just moments away but before we do this let's thank the following unions for sponsoring this podcast unions like the international association of machinist and aerospace workers local 126 and district 8 the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9 are sponsors, as well as the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. <laughs> Thanks, unions. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky's show. It wouldn't be possible without our good... I mean, it'd be possible, but it'd be really hard to do. Uh, without our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. That's correct. How about a song of the day? Well, this is... I'll tie this into what we're doing. This is one of my greatest hits of the 70s. I used to go to parties. Da, da, da. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. <laughs> you recognize that song? No. Marvin Gaye. <laughs> the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, June 16th, and still live from Ben's Attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's the long-awaited return of our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Dukmasova, and two interviews, that's right, Kevin Blackestone. And now your host. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Neil Gorsuch Tuesday. And here's why. Great weekend. You have a great weekend, D? Yeah, it was okay. Oh, that's that's better than normal. Okay. Right. right. No, that's good. That sounds better. Okay. I saw Defy Bloods. Every, I urge everybody to run. Don't walk to go see it. It's Spike Lee's newest movie. It's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, go see it. I'm a little, the only thing I'm disappointed about is that it wasn't on the big screen. Of course, there are no big screens at the moment. At least there's no movies playing on them. Uh, so we went directly to uh, Netflix. But great flick. And uh, later this week, Sergio Mims and Daniel Scruggs, our two ace uh, movie experts, will be coming on the air to discuss. We're going to take it analyze the movie talk about uh the politics of the movie talk about the the, the weaknesses and the strengths and maybe do a, go just do a whole deep dive in spike lee in general um big fan of spike lee anyway so that's what i did this week oh, this weekend i woke up monday 
to the sounds of cheering. Well, metaphorical cheering, that is. I saw a headline on my phone. Landmark decision protects LGBT workers. The Supreme Court made a ruling that said it was no longer legal to discriminate against people based on their sexual preferences. Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers! (laughs) Bruce Round. I don't know if Bruce Rauner was excited by that ruling. Uh, Bruce Rauner is, you know, Republican. Anyways, I mean, I, did you hear him? Yay for our teachers. Yay <laughs> for our teachers. That sounds thrilled. Yeah, he's thrilled. Yay for our teachers. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's trying to destroy the uh, the entire profession. Anyway, forget about Bruce Rauner. Uh, by the way, who does he say yay for next? After that, do you remember, D? Test your memory. And Burke. Very good. Look at the brain on Brad. <laughs> anyway, so I figured that the ruling must have been a five to four ruling. You know, I figured that the four Democratic justices uh, lined up in uh, favor of uh, extending the number protection. four. <laughs> Sorry, just testing out my equipment here. That sounded good. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I'm not four, right? Doing a, yeah, but I'm not doing a list. But if you want, I'll do a list. Number one. Uh, so I figured the four uh, Democratic justices uh, were lined up in favor of uh, extending rights to LGBT workers. I figured the four MAGA hat wearers uh, went the other way, just following orders from Donnie Trump. Uh, and then I figured, well, you know, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was the swing vote, the deciding vote. That was just like he was with the Obamacare vote, the decision that went down a couple of years ago. So anyway, I clicked on uh, the story. And what do I? find to my shock my amazement my surprise it was a six to three ruling or as they they would say if i had radio trading the ruling was six to three yeah six to three ruling i was very surprised yes john roberts went with the dems but here's the shocker that everybody's talking about ever since neil gorsuch went with the dems as well in fact it was neil gorsuch who wrote uh, the decision and who wrote the following sentence i will now read it I'm going to pretend I'm a justice on the bench. Here, here. The court's in order. That's my justice on the bench uh, imitation D. Uh, Quote, an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender defies the law. Justice Neil M. Gorsuch wrote for the majority in the 6-3 to ruling. Wow. I didn't see that coming. Let me just remind you. Uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, is the justice nominated by uh, Donald John Trump. Uh, He is the justice that Donald John Trump uh, selected to fill the Scalia vacancy. And that was the vacancy that existed courtesy of Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, leader of the Republicans in the Senate, who refused to give Merrick Garland a hearing back in, what was that, 2015? Mitch McConnell, thank you for dropping in. Uh, What's your thoughts on Neil Gorsuch? Hold that thought. It's a good one. Uh, Anyway, so as you recall, uh, Mitch McConnell refused to give a hearing to Merrick Garland, uh, who was Barack Obama's uh, nominee. And uh, I believe they call it the ha-ha principle of justice. Uh, it's a position that goes like this. Ha-ha, we're going to do whatever we want to. Anyway, that was... That's not a nice one. <laughs> well, that's kind of what Mitch McConnell did. He's like, I'll do what I want. F you, Barack Obama. Let the people decide. So anyway, eventually, uh, Donald John Trump was elected president of the United States because of this cockamamie electoral system we have. Even though he lost uh, the election and got less votes than Hillary Clinton, he got to select who the justice was. Uh, and the, uh, the uh, Republicans in the Senate who hold a majority uh, rubber stamped it. And in comes Neil Gorsuch and the Republicans are jubilant. And they're thinking, my God, we'll be, uh, rub- he'll be rubber stamping Donald Trump decisions for as long. As long as Donnie Trump is president. Well, um, I got to tell you, like I said, 
uh, I was caught off guard by this one. And, uh, you know, uh, it was interesting in the fall. I started reading the articles about it and seeing, you know, everybody was a little off caught off guard with this one. At best, again, they thought it would be a, uh, a five to four decision with John Roberts uh, going with the Democrats at best, but most likely he would go with the Republicans. So it would be five to four against. And then, so, you know, they had all these uh, experts. I, I read about them and they were talking about, well, you have to understand. You know, I love when the, the, the judicial experts come on. They act like it's a legit process. He's a textualist. And as a textualist, he uh, makes his rulings based on a strict textual reading of the text. And uh, the word sex uh, that's in the law means sex. And so, therefore, he's extending it to all sex, uh, LGBT workers, et cetera, and sexual practices, et cetera. It's a very strict reading of the law, and that's what a textualist does. I got to say, man, I don't want to be the cynical, skeptical guy in the bunch. Oh, okay? that's a first. <laughs> I'll mark that down. I'm actually very, I just for the, you know, I Chicago made me very skeptical and cynical. Okay, D, I, I tend to believe people. Like, I have a hard time believing that people blatantly lie. And then when they, when I'm confronted with a lie, I'm like, you're lying. What? I, I, I don't get it. And they go, what are you, dumb? Did you just fall off the boat? Huh? Huh? Just get off the turnip truck? Huh? Isn't that the saying? I didn't just fall off. Why do they call it a turnip truck, huh, D? Oh, you don't know. Anyway. Well, you're the old one of this uh, <laughs> duo, buddy. Yeah, but it's, yeah, you're right. Uh, I am the old one. Anyway, uh, so, I, I, guys, I'm just going to put this out here. And, um, you know, all my liberal friends out there, please don't get mad at me uh, when I say this. But this notion that these judges are like, I don't know, bastions of objectivity. They're icons. They're fiery move from political concerns. I, I, I don't know, guys. It's a little naive. Uh, judges are political animals. They wouldn't have made it this far in the process if they weren't political animals. I mean, they're part of a political process. That's why they're nominated by politicians to fill these slots because they are part of the process. They're in, in the mix. And, you know, and then even even once they're in the mix and they're supposedly objective uh, judges on the bench, they still have lives. They're still human beings. They still go home. They still have, you know, wives or husbands with political views that they discuss at the table. You know, you think they, I'm sorry, I am not allowed to discuss that because I'm considering it. I, I don't think that happens. They have kids, you know, who are going to make comments on them. They read the newspapers. They see the TV shows, uh, the, the, the the commentary on TV shows. So, you know, they, they're influenced by things outside them. And they're, so they, there's political considerations. It's not just strict reading of the law. I, I know that sounds really cynical, but they're political animals. So in this particular case, my theory is this. Uh, Neil Gorsuch and John Roberts uh, represent more or less a rational, I have that in quotes, uh, part of the Republican Party that's thinking of a time when the MAGA hat one will not be uh, ruling the party, when the party won't be like some strange cult dedicated to a lunatic, which is what the Republican Party is right now, with the exception of a few people like Mitt Romney, you know, for instance. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of anybody else right now, but maybe our listeners can help me out if there's a Republican other than Mitt Romney out there right now, at least, at least a senator uh, who is not just blindly uh, dedicated uh, to Donald John Trump. I guess Tim Scott of South Carolina is sort of borderline on this one, but um, not many of them. Anyway, so by and large, the Republican Party uh, is wedded to Donald Trump and they're willing to go off a cliff for him. But Gorsuch and Roberts are thinking of a time maybe in the next four years 
please, 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 where the Republican Party will not be led by Donald John Trump. Uh, and I'm not a doctor. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for that. Uh, but you're going to give medical advice anyway. Like, take this bleach. It'll help you with COVID-19. I'm not a doctor. Ah, thank you. <laughs> but even though you are, yeah, take the bleach. Uh, anyway, so... Um, so I think it's like a political decision by Gorsuch uh, and Roberts. Follow me in this, everybody, uh, where they're trying to unlodge the Republican Party from the, some of their wackier uh, ideas and attitudes and political positions uh, that the party has embraced uh, in the age of Donald John Trump. And one of them has to do with this interesting definition of liberty. So uh, Republicans are always going around espousing their right to liberty. It's a big word for Republicans. Liberty, liberty, liberty. The uh, Operation Gridlock people, remember when they showed up to protest in Michigan and Madison and Springfield and in Chicago, they talked about liberty. They have the liberty, we have the rights that uh, we cannot be, uh, a government cannot in, come in and tell us what we can do, this, that, and the other thing. We have liberty, okay? Uh, that's their belief. So, but, so they have, for instance, believe uh, in the liberty of a baker, not to sell a wedding cake uh, for a gay marriage. It's his liberty. That's his right. On the other hand, somehow or other, their definition of liberty uh, enables the government to say that uh, gay couples cannot be protected from discrimination in the workplace. Nope. Sorry. So somebody has the liberty not to uh, serve a gay couple if it's his bakery, but the same couple is does not have the liberty to work. Okay, I guess that's that's their definition. It's not so they're not they don't really believe in liberty. They're they're called what I call cafeteria libertarians. That means they pick and choose what liberties they believe in. So, for instance, you know they have a First Amendment right to say whatever they want, and no matter who they insult. But Colin Kaepernick, of course, does not have a right to take a knee. I miss the Sun Times cafeteria. It was good. They had snacks. You can hang out there. Okay, it's kind of not the point, but thank you for uh, weighing in on that. So cafeteria uh, libertarians, they pick and choose what they want, and uh, John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch have decided that, you know, it might be a good idea going forth if the Republican Party is not tied to the MAGA hat creature and prepare for a life uh, afterwards. In other words, it's a very political decision. Uh, I do not believe... It's anything having to do with a fine reading of the law. These are politicians. These are political animals. I made this point to my wife uh, today or last night. I made it twice, actually, in conversation. And she said, well, I don't care why they did it. I'm just glad they did it. To which I say, amen, amen to that. We got a great show today, everybody. Two guests uh, in the live segment. Yes, we have two guests in the live. Oh, my God. Can we do it? Can we handle the phone call? Always the most treacherous moment. Number two. Two guests. Bam, bam. Always That's the correct. most treacherous moment of the Ben Jarofsky show. Only for you. I think it's oh. kind of fun. Oh, Mr. I'm not worried about that, Ben. I have a telephone and I know how to use it. Well, if I pay the bill, uh, I can way, use my phone. Great news. The pre-show. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Go ahead. Okay. Pre-show prep for the Ben Jarofsky. We always joke about our pre-show prep. Today's pre-show prep, 
uh, included a session where we try to figure out, is Dennis's phone bill up to date? Okay, had he paid the bill, and would we have the phone? God help us if we had to use old Betsy here for our phone. My phone, which runs out of batteries like every three minutes, uh, versus Dennis's great phone. He's got this beautiful phone. It's awesome. But the phone bill part of the phone is a little iffy. You guys know, you uh, well, if you're with Sprint, you can get your uh, you can get it extended. I got mine extended to two weeks. Well, Pretty cool. We learned that in the pre-show prep. <laughs> I go, Dave, we have two guests today, two. One, and Dennis is like, well, I hate to break the news to you, but... I think they turned off my service. I think. No, so, dude, so they, they turned off my service. So we did a test, pre-show test on the Ben Jarofsky show, testing number one. Now I want you to huh? do the thing. Huh? <laughs> number one, we tested to see, uh, could he take? Number one. There we go. Could he take calls? So I called him and he's like, it works, it works. Then we, the big test number two, number two. Uh, we tested, could it make calls? And what was the little, when we called, what did it say? Uh, we have sent you to the call, pay up your bill. The person owning this phone is a broke ass. <laughs> <laughs> Pathetic. Yeah, so then. Number two. Uh, uh, brown line roaring. But yeah, we're still in the attic, ladies and gentlemen. We're not back at the Sun Times. Anyway, so the, the bottom line. I'm broke. <laughs> he cut a deal with the phone company. We got a deal for you. And it's been extended for a couple. We had, man, we were ready to do all kinds of Venmo things and uh, uh, trying, to, trying to find my wife. To, hey, Venmo did some money. Hey, be easy. Help a brother out, huh? Any, if, if you're in radio right now, come on, help Come on, be easy. Uh, come on now. Right, be easy? FMT, come on. All right. Be easy. He doesn't really like sports. I think they're holding that sports thing against you. <laughs> sports. So ironic. <laughs> I do like sports. Well, basketball. I'm going to pretend you don't like it, and then they'll hire you. In the... Are you kidding? Oh, he doesn't like sports. No, come on, be easy. Wake up. All right? Hire Dr. D, at least part-time. So I get to keep him the other time. Uh, anyway, so um, we have two guests. Uh, Maya hasn't been on in a while. She's got a great story about uh, police uh, unions and the Fraternal Order Police. We'll be discussing that. And my dear friend Kevin Blackstone uh, will be here. And uh, I don't know if you guys recall, Kevin did a, we did a, no, it wasn't a bonus. We did a, a seven o'clock drop interview with Kevin about The Last Dance. Kevin is a uh, sports writer. Uh, he's been in the business for a long time. He writes for uh, Washington Post, his columnist for Washington Post, and he's a commentator on ESPN. And uh, we, he, just, he did a very moving commentary a little while ago about um, the, the, how he can no longer tolerate seeing video footage of black men being uh, killed by police. So uh, he's got some interesting thoughts and views on... Uh, it's like it desensitizes America uh, to the death of um, black men. So we'll hear what Kevin has to say about that and other issues of the day. But before we do that, the young man from Alton, the man they call Denice. Denice. D-nice. <laughs> I like Denice. Remember Denice? She worked at the uh, Sun-Times. So I got a million of them. Uh, the man they call Dr. Doobie. This is why BZ doesn't call me, by the way. I know, man. BZ's like, uh, Dr. Doobie is just... Yeah, laugh about it. Cool. Not, not, not professional. 
Uh, the man they call D Nice with the news. They call me Dennis. How's it going? Like we said, uh, two interviews today. All right, so no farting around. Let's get right into it and find out what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. <laughs> Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Big problems become big problems when you let small problems sit. Ooh deep man there no public events scheduled for the governor today ben any idea what jb's up to absolutely sitting back resting that femur yeah right yeah okay i tell you what he's doing and he's listening to this show right now he loves this show he's got a he's got some popcorn big box of popcorn he's drinking some water he loves he loves it he he calls you d nice he goes ben call him d nice that's what he's doing that's what Governor Pritzker's up to today. Uh, but see here, uh, the following comes from NPR WSIU in Carbondale, Illinois. Despite calls to reopen, Governor J.B. Pritzker says Illinois is not ready. I just you okay? Need, yeah, I just opened the window to get some air in here. I thought you turned the air on. Yeah, but it hasn't come on. I think it's probably broken. Probably All haven't right. paid that bill. Get ready for that train to blaze well, no, on through. I'll shut it when it comes All right. By. Despite calls to reopen, Governor J.B. Pritzker says Illinois is not ready to reopen. Yes, COVID-19, still a thing. WSIU in Carbondale writes, Senate Republicans, along with other local officials, would like to see the state move to phase four now, saying businesses don't understand why they can't fully reopen when protests with hundreds and even thousands of people are being held. But Governor Pritzker says the pandemic isn't anything states were expecting or knew how to to deal with it first. We have quotes here from Pritzker. Pritzker said, quote, in Illinois, what we've done the right way is rely upon the data, rely upon the science, rely upon the experts. You wouldn't want political decisions being made here about public health. Pritzker says that there has to be time to assess the status of the pandemic after going uh, to phase three last month. Pritzker continued and said at the moment, the challenge that we have in the state is each time you move from one phase to another, you need to take a measure of all that reopening. Well, what's the effects on hospitalizations, on cases, on deaths? Under the governor's Restore Illinois plan, the earliest the state could move to phase four is June 26th. All four designated regions of Illinois currently meet the metrics for that to happen. What's phase four again? Phase four is uh, reopening uh, rest. I don't have all the details on hand. But you can sit in a restaurant. Yes. And we can go to movies. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. I'm, I'm really waiting for going to movies again. Yeah, this is a this is a, a gotcha lawsuit by the Republican Party. I actually uh, I read a good chunk of the lawsuit before we did. Whoop! Hold on, train. Hold on. Here we go. Whoop! Train goes by. Hold on. And train's almost gone. And now, open window. Maya and Kevin Blackstone coming up today, guys. <laughs> Don't go anywhere, please. Uh, I love opening the window. Just fast forward, all right? That's, a, that's an option. You can do that if you're on the download. So, uh, yeah, so it's a gotcha moment. It's like, oh, we're supposed to close down the state, and yet you marched with Black Lives Matters demonstrators, protesters. Oh, I gotcha, huh? We gotcha. First of all, my question to Republicans is, why weren't you marching with the Black Lives Matter protesters? Why weren't you joining that crusade? What, is it just a Democratic issue? Republicans don't care? about the relationships between cops and black people? That's the interesting thing. It's like, they're mad at Pritzker for having marched. You know, they say he's a hypocrite. Well, what about you, Republicans? You're the party of Lincoln. Aren't you hypocritical on that point? They always want to point out hypocrisy when it affects the other party. So yeah, there was an eruption. We talked about it and it just shattered all notion 
of following protocol, people in the streets, people not wearing masks, cops and uh, demonstrators face to face. You know, I'm sure there's a great possibility uh, that COVID-19 was spread, that, the, you know, there's we're going to see a spike. There's a very real chance that that's going to happen. And uh, so I'm really upset by that, D. I'm also upset by the fact that those cops, that cop put his knee on George Floyd's neck, killed him on the camera while the other cops kept people away and didn't stop him. So I feel as though that was a moment in time that sparked this great movement of protest that is finally going to get America to confront these issues that we've been avoiding all these years. So I think J.B. Pritzker was right uh, to be on the front lines with the Black Lives Matter protesters. And I'm disappointed in the Republican Party. Once again, nowhere to be found on any of these issues of importance. They're always in opposition. Anytime we confront anything, climate change, how to fund health care, how to fairly fund our school. Republicans are nowhere to be found. That's why I find it so difficult to think in terms of like coalitions working together with the Republican Party. Over the last 10 years, definitely over the last three years, they've just retreated from any kind of reasonable approach to the problems. They won't even come up with alternatives. So yeah, they, ah, hey, I know. We're gonna take 400 years of racism and use it to catch J.B. Pritzker in a gotcha moment. Thanks, Republicans. You guys are freaking worthless as a party when it comes to dealing with the problems that we face that we're trying to figure out a solution to. Absolutely worthless. So they got this lawsuit, D. They got this lawsuit. We have the liberty. We should open up the state completely. By the way, it's an interesting thing. In the lawsuit, they talk about how the virus does not distinguish between uh, protesters who are Operation Gridlock protesters, uh, those people with the uh, Confederate flags and the Nazi uh, swastikas uh, and the Nazi slogans and, uh, and the rifles, and people uh, who are protesting uh, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm not quite clear, do they want all, they, do they want the, the government to restrict the Black Lives Matter movement protest? like they restrict the uh, Operation Gridlock, or should they say all restrictions are off? Not quite clear. Got to work in that lawsuit, Republicans. Maybe get some better lawyers. So yeah, it's a gotcha moment for the Republicans. Everything's turned into a gotcha moment as opposed to uh, working with Democrats uh, on these problems that have existed for many years. Shout out to Kyle Young on the live stream chat. He says that bit about Ben uh, getting up and down to close the window whenever the brown line passes is better audio podcasting than when Ben held his breath for 10 seconds a couple of months ago. Agreed. Remember that? Wait, hold on. Don't do it. (laughs) That was the one. I actually, this is a little embarrassing, did that a lot to hold the 10 seconds. I haven't heard that one in a while. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Heard, no, no, not just me, but in general. Did some... Uh-oh, train coming. Hold on. Hey, Kyle, your favorite Ooh. bit. Here we go. Hold on, Kyle. There we go. Uh, just shut the window. There goes the brown light. Hold on. Hold on, Kyle. Hold on. And open. There we go. Ah, the breeze. So good. Yeah, I was going through that phase, D, where I read somewhere that if you like, if you can't hold your breath for 10 seconds, you may have uh, COVID-19. So 
I was I would walk up the stairs. Oh, this is the old days of the Sun Times. Walk up the stairs, testing. Yes, we've now reached Roadrunner versus Wiley Coyote status. <laughs> we have another story involving Illinois Governor JB Pritzker and those pesky Illinois Republicans. The Illinois Republican Party has sued JB Pritzker in federal court. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, Dave. Turn the air on. It is on. It's not working. I think when we took care of your phone bill, we somehow or other cut off our... I paid for my own phone bill. Oh, okay. Yeah. The Illinois Republican Party has sued J.B. Pritzker in federal court. This was on Monday, and the Illinois Republicans are seeking an exemption from the 10-person limit on public gatherings in the governor's May 29th executive order. The state GOP, along with three, count them three, local Republican groups, argues that Pritzker's limit on in-person gatherings, which is a part of his plan to slow the spread of the new coronavirus, unfairly curtails people's First Amendment rights. Republicans are asking the court to exempt political parties from the cap on gatherings and seeking permission to hold in-person gatherings without size restrictions in the run-up to the November election. Illinois held a virtual state convention Saturday, a virtual one, Zoom, I don't know. Probably everybody loves Zoom. <laughs> but they held this virtual state convention Saturday to comply with the governor's executive order. And lucky us, we have a quote from that virtual state convention. Here's Illinois Republican Party Chairman Tim Schneider. Tim said, quote, last week, the governor's double standard was on full display as he defended, joined and endorsed large gatherings that violate his very own executive orders. It's clear the governor keeps one set of rules for the people in politically advantaged photo ops and another for the rest of Illinois. The lawsuit filed in U.S. District Court in Chicago alleges that Pritzker's May 29th order violates the First and 14th Amendment rights of political parties, noting that an exemption to the size limit was given to religious groups. Here's a little text from this lawsuit. The lawsuit says, quote, unlike churches, political parties are barred from gathering in groups greater than 10. And unlike protesters against police brutality, they have not been given an exemption based on his sympathy, recognition, and participation. Monday, the governor argued that the steps he's taken to slow the spread of the coronavirus have helped Illinois see a decline in new infections and deaths, while other states have reopened more quickly, are seeing new spikes. Ben Jarofsky, does Tim Schneider have a case here? No, he has no case. And the point he made, political advantage. That just, that that little phrase right there. Again, Tim Schneider, Republicans in Illinois, absolutely worthless on the issue of police relationships with black communities. So what they've done is taken the Black Lives Matters protest and made it seem as like somehow or other there's an advantage. Black people are getting a break. Oh, the state of Illinois society in general treating black people better than white people that's what he's effectively saying that's what he, oh they have a political advantage oh okay tim schneider i'll tell you what why don't you flip for a year maybe just a month a week you become a black person and see if you have a political advantage uh, over what you have right now as a white man in america see that's my prop point with the republican party it's all gotcha moments it's all trying to stir these thoughts and white people's brains that somehow or other they're a persecuted minority that like it's against them the rules are against them i've been hearing this my whole life this is the backlash and there's generally a backlash that comes when black people uh take to the streets to demonstrate just for basic rights so just the notion that there's some kind of political advantage 
uh, to being a black person in America right now is so absurd and ridiculous that Tim Schneider really should think twice before he asserts it. If the Republican Party wants to join the conversation and come up with some kind of meaningful legislation to deal with this very real problem, I welcome it. But right now, all they're interested is gotcha moments uh, to try to save the uh, campaign, save the re-election campaign of one Donald John Trump. All right, moving on. Chicago Mayor Lori Lakefront, I mean, Lightfoot. <laughs> Apologies to all the Aries. But if you stay at home now, maybe you can celebrate with the Geminis later. Damn. Got it down, man. No public events scheduled for the mayor, but trust me, we have plenty to talk about. And I know Ben will be discussing a lot of this with our Chicago Reader colleague, Maya Duke-Masova. Uh, but with the little time we have left, let's talk about the mayor's plan to reopen the city. And if you like boozing it up and hanging out on the lake, oh, did you have a good day on Monday? Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Monday announced plans to reopen the city's lakefront and area bars, but with some changes and new restrictions in place beginning June 22nd, a.k.a. Monday. The Lakefront Trail will be open east of Lakeshore Drive from 6 a.m. until 7 p.m. daily, but constant motion will be required. Beaches. <laughs> Wait, okay. 6 a.m. to 7 p.m.? Daily. Okay, go ahead. Uh, but constant motion will be required. Uh, <laughs> dancing? Uh, <laughs> Everybody dance. Uh, beaches and parks east of Lakeshore Drive will remain closed, however. The 18-mile lakefront trail will be open for exercise and transit only, and no other recreational activities will be allowed, the mayor's office said, uh, stating Chicagoans must abide by a, quote, keeping it moving strategy. <laughs> We're only walking, running, biking, and don't worry, rollerblading will be allowed. Okay, what if you just, like, stop to tie your shoe? We're throwing you in jail right now. <laughs> I suggest getting Velcro, people. <laughs> Slip-ons or Velcro? No, no laces. Don't keep moving, moving, <laughs> moving, Granny. What if you get a stitch in the side? You got to sit down. Get up! <laughs> I tell you what, she's tough, Lori. Like, you know what's weird? Look, I, I know I'm heading into uh, Republican uh, country here, talking about. The Come on and join their convoy. <laughs> Schneider, uh, Tim Schneider from the Republican Party. I've thought things through, and there's a disadvantage to being a white man in America. Did you realize that? I'm Tim Schneider. Um, no, the uh, you know the inconsistencies. First of all, six to seven that irritates me right off the bat. You know what I'm saying? What what, what if you work? I mean, you know what I mean? You can't go to the lakefront. Nightwalkers done. <laughs> it's like I don't know, dragging it out. I want to point something out, D. You know, we talk about inconsistency. I'm going to point something out to you right now. Don't let... Whoa. What is that? That's my phone. Just keep going. Don't let... What you said? Uh, I was like, um, don't let Lloyd Lightfoot know this, but in Evanston, the lakefront is open. And as such, I've been known to go to Evanston and walk along the lakefront, walk to the... Be, be on the beach, D. Don't let Lori Lightfoot know that, okay? Uh -oh. Her control does not extend beyond Howard Street. So you go to Evanston, you walk along. Please, people, don't do as I do, okay? So uh, I don't get this. So Evanston, follow me on this. The lakefront ha is open, has always been open. They never shut it. But the library is closed. You can't use the Evanston Public Library. It's closed. Here in Chicago, the lakefront is still closed. They're going to open it up with so all these limitations. Uh, but our libraries are open. 
At the risk of sounding like a Republican, Dennis, explain that to me. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> I don't get it. Look, I'm going to give everybody a, a break here. Everybody's struggling, right? Everybody's trying to do the right thing. Uh, and uh, Lori's got this thing about the lakefront. Mayor Lori Lightfoot's got this thing about the lakefront. I think they must have done some kind of polling and showed that people really loved it when she took that strong stand, uh, particularly in the north side. We love Lori Lightfoot. Close the lakefront. They love it when she talks stern. I'm going to arrest you. So, uh, yeah, so they're going to open it up. Makes no sense. You can't, you got to keep walking. You can't stop. You got to learn how to drink water and walk at the same time. Don't be, don't get old. Okay, people, don't get old. Here's my uh, recommendation because it's, you know, the older you get, and I say this is an old person, sometimes it's harder to drink water and walk at the same time. Did you know that, day? Well, you're not old. Sometimes you have to stop. Nope, keep moving. Anyway, it's ridiculous. Uh, and the 6 to 7 part is ridiculous. I, I don't know why they're cutting it off at 7 p.m. Oh, we got a stander. We will shut you down. <laughs> we will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you. And we will take you to jail. Anyway, I'm real. some motion there. Yeah, <laughs> keep moving. All right. You stand still for one second. Did they give you like a three-second rule? How about a, like. In, in basketball, you're allowed, how many seconds are you allowed to be in the paint, D? Three seconds, three. isn't it? That three in the key. Yeah. Called. So, uh, you know, don't we have the three-second rule like in basketball? You were a point guard in, in high school, Lori Lightfoot. Come on, give us the three-second rule, okay? You're allowed to stand for three seconds. After that, whistle, and the ball goes to the other team. Have, and then there's a five-second defensive rule. Make have, it five seconds for the defensive rule. Go. Have, front, have fun, lakefront lovers. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, just keep moving. Keep moving. <laughs> Rawhide. Coming up after this break, we're going to talk to Maya Dukmasova, the Chicago Reader. Don't go anywhere. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show. We are live from Ben's house. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from Ben's Attic. Yes, with the air conditioning working, so things are a lot nicer now. Uh, Maya Tukmasova on the phone with me, uh, my uh, colleague and my partner in crime from the uh, Reader newspaper. Uh, Maya, welcome back, Cotter. Hi. It's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a long, been a long, long, lonely time. Sorry, that's a old song, rock and roll song. Uh, Maya Nothing's wrote... changed over here. <laughs> Still the same. Uh, no. Maya's, Still a, Maya's a huge Led Zeppelin fan. She knew that song. Uh, from Soldier to Worker, this is, uh, I would say, must-reading. Great job by Maya. Uh, this is an article that she's been working. Well, I won't steal too much of your thunder. You work really hard on this thing. Like, you work hard on all your stories. But uh, this particular story, you, know, you work very hard on it. Uh, it's, it's like a mini history of uh, the police union in the city of Chicago, the Fraternal Order of Police and uh, how it emerged and the sort of the role it's playing uh, politically in the city in time. And then it closes... Uh, with some interesting uh, exchanges of sorts between you and various labor leaders and their attitudes uh, to whether the police union, a uh, policeman should be in a union, etc. So we'll talk about all that. Uh, but why don't you just sort of summarize uh, some of the main points uh, that you had to, that you made uh, in this article? 
Yeah, well, so with all the current conversation about the power of police unions and uh, the way that police union contracts with cities really protect cops uh, from any uh, serious consequences for violence and misconduct on the job, um, I decided to look into sort of, well, how did police get unionized in the first place? Um, why did they get unionized? And given I knew a little bit about the history of sort of, um, you know, early labor history and the way that the cops were, you know, always called in to break up strikes and, you know, Haymarket and the Memorial Day Massacre, these kind of seminal events in labor history that took place in Chicago that uh, basically came down to, you know, on one side, workers demanding fair pay and, uh, and fair hours um, and fair treatment on the job, and on the other side, cops coming in with guns and killing people. Uh, so um, I wanted to know how is it that cops went from the sort of uh, strike force, essentially, against, against workers to being a, somehow part of the labor movement, and the second thing I was curious about is, given the current conversation in the country, there's a lot of talk also about, like, how do we de-unionize police? Or is it possible? How could we decertify unions? Is that kind of thing possible? So I also wanted to look into, like, okay, well, uh, can police unionization somehow be undone? Or can the way that they bargain their contracts be changed? Um, how can how can the, the power of their... Um, unions be somehow uh hemmed in so that's that that was kind of the framework for the story and what are what are some of the things you discovered uh in terms of the origins of chicago's police unions chicago's fraternal order police for instance one thing that struck me was they have not been around uh relatively that long i know for for you it's been your whole lifetime but for a lot of us Life was going on for a long time without police union, the, the, the police in Chicago being in union. So talk about how recently it was uh, that their union was created. Yeah. So, uh, so, the, so the Chicago, so Chicago police officers uh, voted to have a union and the city of Chicago agreed to recognize their union in 1980. And there was actually um, a history of non-union police organizations in the city going back to like the early 19 teens. But basically, because of the of the uh, relationship with with the wider la labor movement uh, back around World War One, um, there were sort of attempts to for police uh, to form unions. Um, and the AFL actually issued some charters to a few police unions around the country, like maybe 30. And then in 1919, um, the police uh, union uh, went on strike in Boston. And it was like a very major moment in, in, in American labor history. Uh, the, the strike, I mean, basically there was like a bunch of criminal activity that broke out in the city as a result of the strike. Um, it was a big mess. The National Guard had to be called in. The strike was broken up. All the officers involved were fired. And uh, after that, it, it took like another couple of decades before there was another push to unionize cops. Uh, but basically in Chicago, and, and not just in Chicago, but across the country, um, there were these kind of uh, internal organizations, sort of like, um, uh, you know, the Police Benevolent Association, the Fraternal Order of Police, which was founded in uh, 1915 in Pittsburgh, um, 
all, and also like local groups, like in Chicago, it was like the Chicago uh, Police Association, um, later on, uh, the African American Patrolmen's League. So these were sort of like groups within the department that drew dues from members that advocated for um, better uh, pay, that did charitable work, that uh, essentially they, I mean, some of these organizations, a lot of these organizations ran their own publications for cops. They would come to businesses and basically say, hey, buy a membership and become an affiliate member of our organization. Uh, and we'll put a sticker on your business window and we'll make sure that you, you know, the police are really looking out for your business. So they, they ran like a borderline extortion racket on, on the local community in order to, um, fund their operations. They received funding from the department as well. Uh, and, but, uh, in general, municipal workers, uh, government employees were not allowed to unionize, um, and uh until until the 1960s um and uh the uh police in and in chicago uh there was uh, really a, a strong resistance to allowing any municipal employees to 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 um unionize well in the 70s the teachers were unionized in the 70s but not the cops and firefighters and stuff so um basically old man daly richard j daly uh would uh, come to um kind of handshake labor deals basically with the municipal workers so somebody from you know the police organizations would come and represent the cops somebody from the firefighters would come represent the cops all the you know clerical workers and whatever and all of these were basically oral handshake deals but not formal collective bargaining agreements once mayor daly died and the sort of ecosystem of patronage uh kind of collapsed uh in the ensuing years um Jane Byrne in, actually campaigned in her mayoral campaign in 1978-79. She was she was campaigning in part on the issue of allowing the Chicago city workers to uh, to have unions and to enter into collective bargaining agreements with the city workers. Um, she kind of went back on her promise when she got elected, uh, but eventually, you know, the 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 um, there was enough pressure from from the cops uh, and the firefighters were allowed to unionize. And so um, there was uh, there was an election that was held uh, amongst the police officers in 1980 where they got to choose who would be their official union. And so the FOP was one of like five organizations vying to represent the Chicago cops. A couple of them were the internal like uh, Chicago uh like police association, I forgot all the names. They all have very similar acronyms. Um, this is all in the story, but basically, a couple of the internal organizations, the FOP, which had like relatively fewer members than some of those groups, and then the Teamsters and the Paper Workers Union were all trying to be like the union for the cops. And the FOP ended up winning the election um, because they had had success already in Illinois and other cities uh, of of getting recognition from cities and get hammering out collective bargaining agreements and most importantly getting the police bill of rights into those into those contracts and the police bill of rights was essentially uh and it's still in the union in the police union contract today it's 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 essentially like something that mirrors the constitutional bill of rights that protects police officers in case when they are uh facing discipline and they're uh, accused of, of violence and brutality and the push for the police bill of rights really started in the 60s and 70s when 
uh, awareness about police brutality and instances of police brutality became uh, much more, you know, public, much more uh, widespread, uh, kind of, uh, I mean, these things were known and very familiar to people in the black community for decades and centuries. But um, uh, in the 60s, there was a bunch of Supreme Court decisions that came out that protected um, people who were accused of crimes. Uh, and in response to these, what the cops saw as like really like limits to how they're able to treat people who they arrest, um, in conjunction with the fact that they were increasingly facing serious discipline uh, or facing scrutiny, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go as far as saying serious discipline, but they were facing increasing scrutiny from departments for um, various misbehavior. Uh, cops started wanting to have their own Bill of Rights. So, yeah, that's kind of the history in brief. And, and, and the FOP has successfully won this in, in for other police departments. And so they were they they won the day in 1980 when it came to Chicago cops to pick a union. Uh, and before we get into some of the uh, what the Bill of Rights how it gets translate translated into specific provisions in a contract that you uh, put point out in the story, some of the more controversial pro uh, provisions in the contract. Just go back and reflect on the uh, the moment that you used in your lead, uh, which is it was a moment when I, I remember reading it last week when I read your story, thinking it was like, it sounded like an, uh, something that took place on another planet in a different time. Uh, where uh, there was a ceremony and the, the Fraternal Order Police was represented. Uh, it was a Haymarket uh, ceremony. Uh, I think she said Studs Turkle was there as well. Talk a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, in 2004, the uh, Haymarket Memorial was dedicated, the one that's in the West Loop now, that sort of big bronze sculpture with the like kind of figures of people on top of a wagon. This this um, this sculpture was dedicated in 2004. Uh, for many many years, there hadn't been a, a sculpture memorializing the Haymarket affair um, in the city. In the 70s, up until the between like the 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 basically like the 19th century and through the 70s, there was a there was a big monument like a statue of a cop that uh, memorialized the Haymarket affair. Uh, the city put that up, you know, as a tribute to the cops who were killed uh, during the during the Haymarket affair, and uh, it was destroyed and vandalized repeatedly over the years. In the late '60s, the weathermen bombed the memorial twice, and so eventually, the city. Uh, actually, this was a fun fact that didn't make it into the story, but it used to be that cops would be like one of the discipline like things that they would have to face if they were they got in trouble on the job, depending on the severity of the, of the misconduct. But one of the disciplinary assignments that cops would get would be to go guard the Haymarket cop statue. Uh, and, it, and it cost the city like $63,000 a year to, to guard the statue because it was like getting vandalized all the time. So the city kept spending money on, on protecting it. So eventually, after the weathermen bombed it twice, uh, the, the monument was moved to the police academy first and then to the Chicago police headquarters, uh, and that's where it still stands to this day. Um, and then there was a plaque to the Haymarket Affair for a while, and then finally in 2004, they dedicated this big, this big monument that, that wasn't just like a monument to a cop. So, um, yeah, and as, on that day, it was so, like, kind of interesting to... to to 
picture this moment. I mean, I wasn't here in 2004, uh, but uh, the president of the, of the Fraternal Order of Police at the time, Mark Donahue, and Dennis Gannon, the uh, president of the Chicago Federation of Labor, stood together with Richard M. Daley and with Doug Circle and like dedicated this memorial. And I thought that might be an interesting way to enter into the story because it's like, how did we go from an event in which cops had, uh, you know, brutalized these workers who had been striking? Then there was this like sham trial that ended in death sentences for a bunch of people who were convicted on very scant evidence. Uh, how do we go from that to the president of the CFL and the police union dedicating the statue together? Yeah, it's a, and, it's, and, and then I've look where we are right now. The Fraternal Order of Police uh, is really alienated from most people in the city of Chicago. Uh, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, big time uh, Donald Trump supporter. And as I always point out, Donald Trump uh, is perhaps the most despised elected official by residents of the city of Chicago. I think 88% of the people in the city of Chicago voted against him. So uh, the, the Fraternal Order of Police, at least in, in terms of the political choice for who they really love and admire, at least the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, is far alienated from the people that uh, they're policing. And I uh, urge all of them to just rethink that political equation a little bit uh, before they go forward because it could probably help them if they get a little more in tune. Not that anybody in fraternal order police would take advice from me. All right, let's get into those uh, provisions in the contract that are perhaps uh, the most controversial uh, and, and uh, in terms of protecting police who are accused of wrongdoing. Talk about those a little bit. Yeah, so some of the things, I mean, there's there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff in there, but like some of the things that um, that are in the contract are that a police officer uh, can revise a statement that he gives about an incident in which, you know, like say sh there's a shooting, a cop shoots someone, uh, they give a statement and then they can revise it after reviewing video evidence or audio evidence uh, that exists of the incident. Um, they are, there's like rules about when and how they can be questioned and how long they have to prepare before they, before, before they're questioned. Um, there is a protection there. So you can't have, the department can't investigate anonymous misconduct complaints. So if there is, uh, in order for a misconduct complaint against the cop to actually be logged, there has to be an affidavit from the complainant and the name of the complainant is shared with the officer that's being investigated. So you can imagine how much of a, how, how, how much that dissuades people regular ordinary citizens who might submit a complaint, who might have a bad experience with a police officer, if they have to give their name, if they have to sign a legal document, you know, that they're, that, that they're, uh, you know, what they're saying is truthful. Um, and then, and then they have to share their name and address and then the cop gets that information. So there's all kinds of, uh, uh, sort of rules in there that, that make it so that people are, discouraged from filing complaints and then if they if there are complaints filed then there are all kinds of layers of protections for the cops from facing discipline for those complaints and the investigative process itself gives cops if you think about cops as, a, as like defendants in some kind of internal justice system um 
there is such a tremendous amount of leeway that's given to them, like something that's way beyond that what criminal defendants get in the criminal justice system. So uh, when a cop is, is uh, you know, fa- facing some kind of uh, misconduct allegation or kill someone on the job or hurt someone on the job, they get a layer of benefit of the doubt and protections uh, that, that are just like unimaginable for a criminal defendant in our system. Yeah, this is, uh, these are provisions that uh, Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, has uh, said that she wants to uh, change, to amend uh, in uh, uh, the contract with the Fraternal Order Police, and that'll be interesting to see. But here's the problem, and I get into this into the story a little bit. She can say that all she wants, but if the contract goes to arbitration, this, she's not gonna, not, none of that is going to happen. And this is something that I think is really important for people to understand. I did a whole story about how police contracts go into arbitration and what happens in arbitration uh, a couple of years ago. And so this is linked in this piece as well. And I, and I mentioned this issue, but essentially if negotiations are at a standstill, the union is allowed to ask for interest arbitration to happen. And in that case, the contract then passes out of the process of give and take bargaining where, you know, this, the cops say, we want this. And the city says like, no, we're not going to give you this. We'll give you this instead. The kind of give and take process. Instead of that, the, the, the entire process is shifted into the hands of an arbitrator who's supposed to be a neutral third-party person that will evaluate what both sides want and pick like a middle route and make a decision that somehow in, the, in a little bit giving something to both of them or nothing to both of them. Um, and the, the, the arbitration process, which I, I interviewed in that story that I did a couple of years ago, I interviewed someone who had been an arbitrator in the, it was a, with the FOP contract before, and he described this as being like an inherently very conservative process. So nothing groundbreaking and new is going to come out of a contract that's, that's finalized in an arbitration. Because the other thing the arbitrator has to do is decide whether the thing that the each, you know, each change that's being made is sort of in line with the spirit of the prior contract. So the prior contract sort of sets the precedent. So if you're looking to massively all overhaul the, uh, the, the, the scope of the police contract, it, it, it's not going to happen if it goes to arbitration. And it's the union's prerogative to demand their arbitration. So Kevin Graham, the former president of the FOP, had already put in an arbitration demand back in December. Because remember, they've been their contract expired in 2017, and they haven't had a new contract since. They've been supposedly negotiating ever since then. So Graham put a, a, a demand for arbitration in, in December. This new guy, John Catanzara, wrote in on the FOP website in a memo to the membership that like he's going to go back to the bargaining table and see if they can get something done, kind of with a new leadership in the room. But he's not withdrawing the arbitration demand. So he's still keeping that option on the table. And the last, the three of the last four FOP contracts were decided through arbitration. So especially if if they feel like there's going to be some pressure to massively change something in their contract, they're going to take it to arbitration. And in that case, and so this is where the question comes in. Okay, like what do we, if some, if if there was some, if something was going to change, how could it change? And essentially like, if we're going to allow contracts to be decided through arbitration, then the only change we can make is to change the rules for arbitration and how the arbitrator functions. And that would require a change in state laws. And in this entire movement that we see in this moment, that conversation, like I've, I haven't heard it anywhere because this is so kind of like in the weeds and esoteric. And, I, and a lot of people don't know about this. 
but essentially like, you know, I will, I like, I'm holding my breath of, uh, you know, seeing what, Laurie, what kind of hardball Laurie Leifold is, Laurie Leifold is able to do um, with these contract negotiations? Because if it goes, you know, if it's if it's, if it's in the hands of the arbitrator, we're going to have the same kind of contract again. Well, uh, we're running out of time here, so I guess we'll leave to the next time the whole issue of whether uh, a police should even be in a union. I personally believe yes they should have collective bargaining rights it was interesting at the end of, well let's get into it just briefly at the, at the end of uh, uh the uh, story you wrote you, you you ran down a list of uh labor leaders in chicago and you asked them uh, questions uh, uh, regarding police uh, and you had a line in there which i'm um I can't remember exactly, but it was along the lines that they were ducking and dodging. A lot of the union leaders were ducking yeah. and dodging oh, yeah. uh, on this issue. That's what yeah. I would call it, ducking and dodging. I mean, one of the things that can happen, one of the things that's, that's, that's kind of problematic in all of this is that, is that politicians are afraid to, to really be hard on the police unions because a lot of them are still worried about, one, coming off as not harsh enough on crime, and two, alienating uh, you know, people who see the police as a positive force in their lives in their neighborhoods, um, kind of alienating voters. And unions are, are, a lot of unions have the same calculations. And a lot of the people I talk to, uh, you know, sort of talk about how there's a cultural issue here. If, you know, you've got the nurses union or the teachers union or whatever, union leadership has to be very careful in how they talk about this because tons of their members may be married to cops or related by family to cops or live in the same neighborhood as cops. And so people are very, I, I found in my reporting, I found that the union leadership was very mealy-mouthed in terms of like talking about this issue. People were very careful and calculated in how they responded. The members on the ground that, you know, members of these various unions that I talked to, you know, people speak their mind much more freely, but the leadership is very, is very careful. And so um, one of the uh, most interesting interviews I had uh, was with the former general counsel of the AFL-CIO, and she talked about how, like, unless the labor movement, you know, big labor, you know, the AFL-CIO, these big, big labor federations, the Chicago Federation of Labor, if they had, unless they stood up and actually said, like, we are not with this union, we are, I mean, you can, some of them would go as far as to say, like, look, like, I think cops should have the ability to bargain over their salaries and the work conditions, but they don't get to bargain over how misconduct investigations are done. You know, even having a stance like that, like having some kind of stance that, like, that, that, that underscores that cop unions are not, like, are getting, like, deals from their employers that no other, no other union gets. Like, no other union can secure the kind of protections uh, for their workers for killing someone on the job that cops that cops unions are able to do. So until the big labor has the have has the potential to change the to help change the political calculus around this, to signal to politicians that like look, we're not down with the way these contracts work for cops. We may want the cops to have to have representation for with the union, but we're not okay with how these misconduct investigations are run, and we don't think that our movement stands for this kind of for, for these kinds of contracts. So if you know that if, if if other labor movement groups decided to make these kinds of statements, then maybe politicians would be like, okay, 
getting, you know, cracking down on the police unions, maybe I can afford it because look, I have like all these other union constituents that are behind me. But that kind of, that kind of thing is just, um, hasn't really precipitated yet yeah. out of this whole political moment we're in right now. I would take the word really out of that last sentence. Maya, we got to go. Thank you very much. Great story. I urge absolutely everyone to check it out on the reader website. Uh, Maya takes the deep dive on the Fraternal Order Police. It's also in the paper. What'd you say? What'd you say? It's also in the paper. Oh, the paper it's also in the paper, yeah. God, I'm so used to not seeing the paper. You're right. It's also in the the actual real uh, Chicago Reader, my beloved reader. Take care, Maya. Stay safe and stay sound, all right? All right, bye. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question. Bye, Maya. It wouldn't be. We got to play that for Maya every time. She, Maya's favorite moment. A probing question from Lori Lightfoot. All right, we got Kevin Blackstone uh, next. The great Kevin Blackstone, ESPN uh, columnist, uh, Washington Post columnist. What are you guys going to be talking about? Oh, my goodness. We're going to be talking about, well, you know, we're doing some sports conversation with Kevin Blackstone. What? <laughs> but sports, politics. Sports? Race, sports, politics, and race. Uh, and then uh, also talk about uh, the, um, the uh, op-ed piece he did for the Washington Post. Uh, it was actually a video that he did about how uh, the politicization of um, showing videos of black men being uh, murdered by police. Very interesting stuff from Kevin Blackstone. Ah, all kinds of things uh, with Kevin, you know, maybe... Um, but I'm going to get into my uh, my vent my vent against the Chicago Bears and their prejudice against black quarterbacks. See what Kevin has to say about that. And he's going to talk about the movie he's making on the football team in Washington. And I'm with Kevin. I'm not going to say the name of that football team because I think it's a derogatory name. So lots of uh, political and sports conversations coming up with the great Kevin Blackstone. And while you wait, Michael Girardi, a new low. <laughs>
excellent song. That is Michael Gerard. The man is so talented. And I, Ben said during the song, he's so good. Why is he on the show? No, that is, I you didn't have to say. It. I didn't mean it that way. I'm like, this, first of all, I'm so appreciative that he <laughs> no, donates yeah. his music to us. But he's so freaking talented. I think he's better than 99.9% of the rock and roll musicians out there. There, I said it. Okay? He said it. All right? He's There's Neil Young and then there's Michael. Okay? There you go. Mad props to Michael Girardi for Neil Ben Young, Michael. All right. I'm not a huge fan of rock and roll, although I do like Led Zeppelin. Uh, but uh, as far as I can tell, like when it comes to social protest, Neil Young, Michael, and then old Bob Dylan. There you go. That's the list. Well, let's find out if our guest uh, makes any music, plays guitar. Kevin Blackstone. We're going to we call go. him up here. Here we go. I love this moment of Ben Girardi show you. with Dr. D. He's, you think he's scared? You think? Hey, be easy. Are you paying attention to this? This guy's got the big phone out there. He paid his bill. All right, everything's... And now it's ringing. ringing. Great commentary, Ben. <laughs> He's not afraid. Dr. D knows how to handle that phone. And we wait. Oh, well, maybe he doesn't recognize my hillbilly downstate phone number. Uh, I'm going to text him that we're calling him right now. Calling now. He might... Who is this? Your call has been forwarded. Oh, that lady. So we'll try again. I like this part of the show. No, it's fun. It's favorite part of the show. That and when the train goes by and the windows open. Hey, while we got this time, we want to remind everybody, go check out our Benny J bonus interviews, all right? We have a ton of content. Over 500 episodes of the Ben Jarofsky Show for you to download. Unbelievable. Yes. Uh, go check it out. Both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. We had a brand new batch of Benny J bonus interviews. Well, that was a tongue twister. A brand new batch of Benny J bonus interviews uh, up this weekend. Uh, ben, who are they again, if you can remind okay, us? Okay, now, this is tricky because I'm going to have to remember who we did last week without confusing them with who we have coming up, okay? Because we're the hardest working show in show business, all right? Hey, JB said it. Big problems become big problems when you let small problems sit. Don't let those small problems sit. And let's find out what shows are coming. Jay, okay, first of all, last week, uh, we, we dropped them. That's a radio, <laughs> a podcasting term. <laughs> Dennis figured out how to do it. I don't still haven't figured it out, but he knows how to set it up. So false, boom, man's a master. By the way, BZ, you hear that? The guy knows the stuff, all right? Knows how to make it drop, okay? Anyway, um, Jimmy Coogan, uh, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan, breaks down. Hey, Ben, how's it going? <laughs> All the legal decisions. <laughs> we have a That's nice, a pretty good Jim yeah, Coogan. It's a really good invitation. Uh, a police immunity. And uh, we talk my, a lot of Michael Flynn with him. Atiba Buchanan uh, and David Seaton. Uh, radio personalities at WBN. Come on for the deep dive on all the political issues of the day. And then Del Marie Cobb. Uh, Del Marie Cobb loved talking local politics and national politics with Del Marie. And she just sort of talked, gave us like a historical view of what it, you know, the, uh, the movement for against police brutality uh, in the city of Chicago and in the country just gave us that long range perspective that Del Marie provides. Del Marie and I have been around a long time. Love talking politics with Del Marie Cobb. That's that week. So you can hear those already coming up. Yeah, hold on. Let's. That's a tease. Hey, coming up. Wait for that, huh? Yeah. All right. Let's see if Kevin answers this time. Yeah. Okay. One ringy dingy. Two ringy dings. He just texted me. Thank God we got more (laughs) bonus interviews to talk about. Oh, we got. Plus, I could talk about 
I don't blame him. He sees a phone number he doesn't recognize and is not answering. Welcome to my life. Hold on. I'm calling him right now on my phone. Oh, wow, guys. You're getting a a lot of bonus material here today, guys. Ben opening the window back and forth. Now him calling Kevin. Hold on. Good times. I hear my phone's working really good here. Shout out to the live stream chat. All of you are awesome. Yes, um, Steven says, over 500 episodes. Boys, get a hobby. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard on me, man. I ride my bike. That's my hobby. All right, let's see here. Um, Oh, hey, Michael Girardi's on the uh, live stream chat. You're the man. Thank you for everything. He's still not answering? No, he's not even answering me. Interesting. Now, I noticed this is a uh, Texas phone number. Do we have a time zone issue? No, we worked that out. He knows. Uh, you know, I mean, there is a time zone issue, but I was very. We've had this. Uh, I forget who else. Uh, what other guests we had? Uh, but uh, actually, I don't even think that was a legitimate excuse with the other guests. But let's just let one go. Um, but there's that issue. Uh, Kevin is in Washington, but I was very careful to of saying, you know, uh, three o'clock your time. All right, we're calling him again. Hey, how about that interview with Maya? Huh? <laughs> that was awesome. All right, here we go. Our Third time's a charm. It. Well, let's see. All of you on the live stream chat. You guys doing okay? Everything all right? Hello? All right. Kevin Blackestone. What's up? That's correct. Always that that moment of uh, fear, Kevin, when we call, reach out to a guest live on the air. We were doing the live stream. Will, Will it work? Will it not work? Ah, but the fun. we paid our phone bill, Kevin, and so our phone is working. <laughs> paid uh, the phone bill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very important. You got to pay the phone bill, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Blackstone is, among other things, a, a columnist for the Washington Post. He's a professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. Uh, he's a personality on ESPN, uh, and he is a former reporter for the Chicago Reporter, and he's an obsessive sports fan for all sports in the uh, there you go. D.C. area, including the football team whose name I refuse to say. You will not mention. Yes. That's right. Uh, which is really That's right. Hey, we, we have the WNBA champion Mystic <laughs> right here. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't your hockey team win once? I I seem to recall Vegas. They only won once. It won won a couple of years ago. That's right. It was a big celebration. Uh, Let's count all the people who care. Mm, Can't find anyone. I remember when they won, Kevin texted me, our hockey team win. I'm like, who cares about hockey? Anyway, we have so much to talk about. I don't even know where to start. You know what? Let's just start with a personal uh, uh, reminiscence. Kevin and I met uh, five billion years ago when we both worked uh, for the reporter newspaper here in Chicago, or the newsletter then, a monthly newsletter uh, dealing with racial issues. This is back in the 80s. But Kevin always points out, uh, Ben, I'm younger than you. Okay, you know. So, yes, he's younger than me. But he's still kind of old, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Ben, I'm still younger than you. Uh, And we both met Conrad Worrell, I think, roughly at the same time. Maybe you had met him before then. Uh, And he just passed. He'd been on my show. We did an interview with him. I was reaching out to him to do another interview. Really sad to say this, Kevin. And he died. Um, so just a few memories yeah. about Conrad Worrell, his significance uh, in oh, man. Chicago. It, yeah, I mean, uh, Chicago opened up um, 
so many new avenues into my mind. And Conroy Worrell was one of the people who did that because he introduced me to the National um, Hands of Black Front, um, which was, you know, a radical black political cultural uh, organization um, that uh, really uh, connected you as a black American to sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, it just made me think about things, um, you know, differently. And the fact that he was, um, he, was a, he was a college professor uh, as well. I think at Northeastern, yes. wasn't it NIU? Yep, Northeastern. And uh, he ran some, yeah, and he, and he ran some study over there. And so he was just one of the, one of those one of those elders uh, you would call them who you would like to be around and just listen to him tell tall tales and kind of explain things and connect dots that you didn't understand were actually connected. Um, you know, guys like him, Timuel Black, all those guys. Uh, stood out to me as um, uh, people I could learn from. And so I was really, um, I was really sorry to see, uh, to, to hear about his, um, his death, but you know, he did, I mean, he did great work. I want to say he may have been, was he with Snick at some point way back in the day? I can't, I can't remember. I think, I think he may have been, uh, but he was, I mean, he was great. He was great to talk to. Great to talk to. What was the word you used? Was he what back in the day? I just didn't hear the word. Oh, so was he, um, I, I was trying to remember if he was um, Snick back in the day. Oh, he might have been. I don't know. Uh, that was before we were, we, yeah. we got to know him. Snick, yeah, back in the 60s, yeah. Um, yeah. That yeah. that was definitely before we got, to, you know what, Kevin, I've never asked you about this. So here we are. Let me ask you about it right now without any prep or anything. Yeah. Uh, when I met you, you were, as I said, we were both young, but you were even younger than I was. Uh, and you had just moved. You had, you grew up in D.C., came to right. uh, Northwestern. You were a student at Northwestern, so you were living in Evanston. And then you, you went yep. to work for uh, The Reporter, and you were living in Chicago. Yep. Was Chicago that much different than D.C. in terms of race relations back in Oh, absolutely. Talk absolutely. about that. Absolutely. Because Chicago, um, you know, the, I'd always heard about the south side of Chicago. And so after I got settled in Evanston, you know, one of the first things I did was hop on the train and take it to the south side of Chicago and see what that was all about. And the south side of Chicago was very much like Harlem. I mean, it was a, um, it was a mini black city. Right, all to itself. And um, one of my one of my roommates, um, Lauren Taylor, who is now back in Chicago, I think he's got a video company um, somewhere. Um, but he was a south a Southsider, and I would go down there with him, and it was amazing because um, even though you're in this huge part of this gigantic city, Chicago, Illinois. Um, you could be on the south side and have everything you, everyone you interact with be black. I mean, that was amazing. I mean, in Washington, D.C., that was not necessarily the case. Washington, D.C. was not as large as Chicago. And because of the federal government, um, uh, there was a lot of integration here, I think, was, um, it was a lot deeper. It was a lot more entrenched. 
But on the south side of Chicago, you weren't necessarily integrated. I mean, and, you know, you saw these black institutions, um, which you didn't have in D.C. Once again, because the federal government's here, this was not a place of industry, right? It was a place of, of, um, uh, of service to the government. Everybody worked for the government or some or something tangentially related to the government. On the south side of Chicago, you know, you had stores, um, the, all the clubs, um, schools that were all black. Um, you had uh, third world books that were being run by uh, Haki Madu Budi, and I used to hang out in there. That was like, that was an unbelievable place. There was just a lot of there were a lot of different spaces uh, on the south side of Chicago that uh, that I really never experienced here in Washington D.C. It was a, it was an eye opener, and then the music the music was just the music was unbelievable. It changed my entire approach to listening to music and who my favorite musicians uh, would become. So yeah, I mean, I, I love I you know one of the reasons I went to Northwestern was to be in Chicago, and it did not disappoint. Explain the the music aspect of that. How did it? What, what did you see in particular that changed your life? Specifically, the um, uh, the AACM, so the uh, uh, which was the um, avant garde jazz organization uh, on the south side of Chicago. Um, people like uh, Muhul Richard Abrams, um, uh, Lester Bowie, um, Leroy Jenkins, who played. Uh, who played avant-garde jazz, violin, um, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, obviously was the big group. Um, uh, just in, incredible, incredible musicians like that. Fred Anderson, um, who had a club on on uh, the South Loop, the Velvet Lounge, was an incredible um, place for music. Um, Douglas Ewart, um, oh man, just just uh, just a ton of musicians and. They just had a different approach to jazz. You know, their approach to jazz was to marry it with um, African rhythm, with African drums, with African um, wind instruments, and to pull it together in just a, a, an incredibly different approach. And I just fell in love. I, I just fell in love with with their adventure in in music. And still to this day, it's really my it's really my favorite root of jazz. Incredible stuff. Now, uh, all those times you were living in uh, in Chicago and venturing to the South Side and uh, working in the Loop, you were in Chicago, I think, for about five or six years, Kevin. My memory serves me yeah. correct. Uh, did you ever have any uh, negative encounters with Chicago police? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, a, a few. Um, one of... Uh, one that was pretty memorable to me was us driving downtown. I had a I had a two eighty Z. I remember. And, that. Uh, <laughs> I remember. Yeah, that. you remember that? <laughs> had a cool little two eighty Z, great yep. car. Yep. And um, I'm driving downtown. I, I think to go probably go to a nightclub or something, meet some friends. And I remember the store was I Magnet. And it was on the corner of Michigan and just about, was that Water Street, I think, maybe? It's right in the heart of the, the, of, of the, the, the coast right there. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming to a stop, uh, a stoplight and it's a busy Friday or Saturday night. 
And all of a sudden, I see these flashing lights just start coming out of both sides of my car. The next thing I know, cops have my car surrounded, and they're screaming at me to, to get out. And they have their guns drawn. And I'm like thinking, what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So I get out of my car. And they take me over to the to the hood of my car and have me turned around and start asking me a bunch of questions. And I mean, it's right in the middle of Michigan Avenue. And I answer whatever the questions were. And of course, I'm startled because I, I have no idea what's going on. I know I haven't I haven't done anything. And uh, uh, my recollection is I, mean, I was I was pretty shaken. My recollection is they said that you know my car um, fit the description. Of someone who had just, um, who had just been seen, seen speeding from a uh, uh, from an armed an armed robbery or armed encounter or something with, with someone, and of course it wasn't me. And they searched my car, and eventually, you know, they uh, they let me get back in my car and, and let me go. Um, that was one. And another one was was late late one night on the south side of Chicago when I was leaving the club and I was headed back home, and um, I rolled slowly into uh, I, I rolled slowly into a stop sign. I didn't stop all the way, and it was kind of a it was a residential boulevard, and you know it was a California stop, right? I didn't come to a stop, and it, and it must have been two thirty in the morning. And then I went on through the stop sign. I drive about another block, and next thing you know, cops pull up on me, pull me over to the side, ask me where I've been, ask me if I've been drinking, ask me if I have any drugs in the car, so forth and so on. Um, and uh, I remember it was a black cop and a white cop. So the black cop kept kept looking at me, but he wasn't really saying anything. And, uh, eventually they just gave me, um, they gave me a citation for, for going through the stop sign. But it was all the other questions that came along with it that were really unnecessary because I really hadn't been doing anything. It was literally a, a rolling stop at a stop sign in a residential neighborhood at 2.30 in the morning. So just let me go. Um, but my worst encounters with police were, were in in other places, uh, New Jersey. Um, New Jersey was probably one of the one of the worst. Boston, when I lived there, I worked for the Globe. That was pretty bad. Um, but yeah, you know, you 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 don't grow up escaping those troubling encounters. So yeah, no, and, uh, and and I would go ahead. Yeah, and I was gonna say, and I can in my first, um, I I vaguely. Uh, recalled this, but after my parents got and I was <clears throat> cleaning out my cleaning out the house and my father, um, I always called him the epistolary activist because he was always writing letters in protest. And uh, uh, I was going through his files and looking at stuff, seeing what I wanted to keep. And I found this letter that he wrote when I was about twelve or thirteen years old. And he wrote it to the um, the regional head of A&P Grocery Store, which is a big chain on the East Coast. And uh, the letter was a complaint um, about security at our local A&P because apparently, um, 
and I really didn't remember this, but I had gotten detained by security guards for potentially shoplifting in the store, which was untrue. And uh, uh, my father was very, he, he was like right about it. He wrote this letter and uh, he demanded an apology. And then he had a, he had a line um, in the, in the, in the letter who said something like, you know, how, how long is it going to be before a 12 year old black boy can walk into a store and not be suspected of being a criminal? That's in like 1972. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, <laughs> that must've been my first, that was my first encounter with, uh, uh, negative encounter with law enforcement. And you don't even remember it, do you? I, va- I, you know, I vaguely, I vaguely remember it. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it wasn't until I saw that letter that it really jarred, jarred my memory to say, "Oh, I kind of remember, I kind of remember that happening." Yeah. Because I, because what I remember the most is um, some official from A and grocery store came to our house one night to personally apologize yeah. to my father. No, uh, just a word about uh, Kevin's dad, Mr. Blackstone. Uh, he was like this legendary figure when Kevin and I were friends back in the 80s, very involved in politics in the D.C. area, oh, and meet, yep. meeting with various congressmen and uh, just involved with the Democratic Party. Uh, yep. I never got to meet him, but I heard all these things about him. And then after he died and Kevin started uh, putting on Facebook these letters and it just sort of cemented his reputation, this legendary figure. You know what I'm saying? Kevin used to talk about yeah. him. Uh, <laughs> oh, Congressman Tom McMillan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he knows my dad. All these congressmen. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe I remember Tom? Jimmy Hoyer yeah. used yeah. to come by the house. Sure, it was no big thing. Are you kidding me? Uh, um, Mr. Yeah, Blackstone. Dad, I did not appreciate Dad's uh, uh, political um, uh, wherewithal until, uh, until later. Because uh, I, I was away when he was, you know, so involved. I mean, he was actually, he actually finished a, a term of a state delegate in uh, Annapolis for a few months. So, um, yeah, I missed all that. But, yeah, he was, uh, you know, I grew up I grew up in a political household. Very much so. So did I. Uh, very much so. My mother inherited almost everything from my mom. All right. Uh, Kevin, yeah. let's talk about uh, this video that you shot. I thought it was an essay, but it was it's actually a video. Very well done, I must give whoever made it credit. Uh, unless yeah, it, they did great job. They did a good job, yeah. And uh, it talks about how, just you, you sort of put in the context, the historical context of these uh, videos that we're seeing on so many, so frequently of black men being killed by the police. Uh, just get at some of the themes that you raised uh, in this piece. Yeah, well, it's, and, it, and, it's, and it's just that. I mean, think about it. Men being killed on video, it has become... It has become, um, you know, a, a part of our daily lives, almost. And they are always, and they are always, um, uh, always black men. Um, and, and, and what struck me was I, I started to get really queasy about these videos um, a few years ago. I, I tell you, the, the two that, that, that jumped out to me. Um, one was Michael Brown in Ferguson, and what got to me about that was how his body was left on the street that summer, just laying in the street like roadkill. I don't know if you remember that. And finally, they brought a sheet 
that, that, that was the amount of dignity that those cops could could muster. They, they got a sheet and threw it over him, and, and, it, and his body just it just it, it just lied there. Um, and then the other one of the other ones that got me was Laquan McDonald, which <clears throat> was a video that came out late, right? It was suppressed mm-hmm. um, uh, by Chicago authorities. Uh, and then when it came out and you saw it, it was, I mean, it shook me to my core because, and, and, and I know that anyone in Chicago can immediately envision that, that that video is seared in your brain. You can see him walking and all of a sudden you're shot and dropped to the ground. Um, like he was quarry, right? In, in, in a hunt. Um, and, and they just really began to disturb me. And I just realized, you know, they, they happened over and over and over again. And while I understand the evidentiary value of these, of these videos, because slowly but surely, in some instances, they brought, they brought justice. Um, but it seems to me they get shown so much that that we don't we don't even recoil from them, and then and, and it makes me question whether or not we as black males are viewed as human as everyone else, because you never see that for, for anyone else. You've never seen um, white male citizens uh, slain on your evening news. Um, at least that's my recollection. Mm-hmm. You know, we even had, you know, up until the Obama administration, you know, we had a government edict where we wouldn't even show um, the return of the remains of, of servicemen mm-hmm. and women from uh, from war theaters overseas. And even though we would not know whether or not those remains were of uh, a soldier of color or not. <clears throat> And I think the idea was you're, you're giving some dignity to the deceased, some privacy uh, to their family, and that maybe that is some what what one of the things that was being hidden there was the idea that in some ways that somehow America was losing whatever war that was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Where they just flip the script and you look at these videos of, of, of black men being slain, um, they're not out of protest, although the people may be shooting them. Um, that's not why they're shown. And, and, and they're just shown so much that I don't think that, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't see people having necessarily having visceral reactions to them that maybe that maybe we should. Um, and so it takes it takes a George Floyd for whatever reason um, to uh, to to cause these uprisings. Um, but even after the uprising, uh, we have the shooting in Atlanta a, a, a few days later of a black man a few blocks away from a place he could go to be called home. Um, being shot in the back as he attempted to to flee. 
um, uh, holding a an officer's taser gun, which is is not necessarily a lethal weapon. So it's just you know just it's just trouble. And I was telling somebody I said you know um, uh, I can't use in writing or in speech uh, the slur what is considered the slur for Black Americans. Um, without it being reduced to what we call the N-word in print or just being bleeped out um, in audio. But yes, this is okay. <laughs> we can show we can show these murders. We can, we can show George Floyd um, dying over 8 minutes and 46 seconds over and over and over again if we want. We can watch the breath being squeezed out of his body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's just disturbing, and I, and I, I think it just speaks to, to the dehumanization of, of black people in, in general, but specifically black males. Yeah, uh, and I would say though, having heard what you said, which is uh, all to the point, that video had a revolutionary impact at least for the moment you know kevin i'm I'm, yep. I'm a very cynical skeptical guy or strike cynical i'm a very skeptical guy so we'll see how far it goes uh right. but and and when i think about it it's it just everything with the, they, the cop with the hands in the pocket i can't you know right. uh, george floyd was so clearly you know the notion that they put out well the guy was a threat uh my life was in right. danger and i had to do this to protect myself and right. um, it's a very disturbing video in many ways, but uh, I do believe that. Yeah, the, Go ahead. You know, I was, I was listening to Ava DuVernay was, was talking about why this particular video set, set off what it set off. Mm-hmm. And she said she was looking at it as a filmmaker. And she said it was the first time that she could recall having seen one of these, you know, and I call them snuff videos, um, where she saw the killer's face so clearly and for so long and being juxtaposed to the killed's face for so long. And so you see life escaping from one person whose face is towards the camera and is pleading for, for breath, and you see the face of the other person who seems completely unbothered by what he is doing to another human being. And she said that's what struck that's what struck her. You know, usually it's a grainy video, you know, some some people moving, the camera doesn't stay still, and rarely do you see um, a close up of the vigilante or the cop who's committing the killing um but this time you saw it he said that's what that that, that's what struck her and like you said so casually uh, uh, a cop with his his hand in his pocket staring at the camera listening to pleas to release this human being and yet he he continues yeah Uh, uh even after the man is dead yeah, no, utterly indifferent to any potential consequences, as though he thought there would be no consequence. 
for doing what he was right. doing. Uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to run away from it. And let's and let's let's talk about the fallout. Uh, has it affected the world uh, that you've spent so much of your life covering, and that the two of us have spent so much of our life obsessing over, and that is sports. Kevin, a diehard yeah. sports fan, uh, almost uh, of the uh, I need help uh, quality. Um, but uh, I, I've never seen anything. I, I mean, I'm saying this now, but I really. The, the 180 that Drew Brees did, and this is when I first called you to get you on the show to talk about, it seems like a u- universe ago, Kevin, you know what I mean? But right. the 180 right. that Drew Brees did, and I'll, I'll tell you, the, we've had some guests talk about this. All right, so just let me back up and just explain this for people who may have yeah. forgotten. Drew Brees, one of the great quarterbacks in the NFL, arguably one of the five greatest quarterbacks currently uh, in the NFL. I always had this reputation being a great guy. Uh, in New Orleans, very community-oriented. Uh, in the, the days just after uh, the release of that video showing uh, George Floyd being killed, uh, he gave a comment, he gave an interview, and he said that he could not um, tolerate, uh, he didn't mention Colin Kaepernick, but any protester taking a knee during the national anthem, uh, which is the standard refrain that the uh, NFL put out to justify why uh, they punished uh, players who took a knee or would not tolerate players for taking a knee and immediately. So that was the refrain that the NFL had been putting out for three years, Kevin, that it's not about the right. issue of police brutality. It's about respect for the flag and Colin Kaepernick right. and all the other black players who were taking the knee were saying, no, it's got nothing to do with the flag. It's got to do with police. Right. All of a sudden within 24 hours, Drew Brees, completely I, he apologized for saying it so the standard refrain that the nfl had been trotting out to explain why it was punishing uh its black players who took the knee got thrown out the window i'm like well yep. i've never seen anything like that in my life have had that quick you know what i'm seeing like no, retreat it, right it, it, it was amazing and, and first of all i'll just put some of the blame on the media because too many of us in the media misreported Colin Kaepernick's story from day one. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have this fictitious phrase in our lexicon now, anthem protest. There was never an anthem protest. There was a protest with the anthem as a backdrop that had to do with unchecked police lethality against black men. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, in the span of 48 hours, Drew Brees goes from continuing to misunderstand this theater to admitting he misunderstood the theater to a rebuke to Trump, who then told Drew Brees he didn't have to back down from his earlier statement. So, yeah, that, that, was, um, that was amazing. And we've seen this. Um, you know, it, it was really, it was really um, a microcosm of what we've seen nationally, right? Because all of these corporations have come out with these, so far, I'll just say, perfunctory statements um, uh, that have, you know, been these kumbaya revelations about Black Lives Matter. Um, and then, you know, Goodell comes out. Um, teams and colleges 
college teams across the country have come out. All these, all these statements have come out. I think Axios did a study where they counted up something like 114 um, such statements, um, most of which were, you know, um, uh, few of which mentioned police lethality, um, most of which, um, most of which just said, can we all get together and find a way to, uh, to live in harmony going forward, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, you know, it was amazing. Um, but I think the uprising brought people to their, brought people to their knees. Yeah. Let me just say something about, uh, anthem protests. You mentioned it and I, I wrote it down when you said it. Yeah. Uh, I understand Colin Kaepernick was not doing an anthem protest, but I actually have friends who right. do anthem protests. I'm just going to put it out there, uh, and they're okay. Uh, and I have they're dear friends of mine and dear friends of uh, Dennis, my producer. Uh, and we'll just I'll mention his first name, Antonio. And uh, okay. Antonio does anthem pro and it, and it, and he's very quiet protest. He's not drawing attention. He okay. just won't stand. Right. Uh, right. And well, he won't stand. He, yeah. He's a Marine. Okay. And okay. he feels it's phony patriotism. He feels that uh, it it's if you if you really support the veterans, you should give money to veterans groups. Uh, right. You, you join the army or yourself if you really. You know what I'm saying? But uh, right. There's things you could do that would show your support for veterans. He thinks it's phony and fraudulent, uh, and he just wants. So we've gone to. <laughs> I'm laughing. We go to basketball right. games with him. And we're like, uh, he's sitting. We're standing. You know. <laughs> I'm like Antonio. Yeah, that I, knee ain't hurting you still. You still got that knee problem. You know. <laughs> anyway, I am 100 percent with him. I've written about that before, and every time I've written about it, talked about it. Um, you know, uh, whoever I work for receives phone calls or letters that they need to fire me. Um, so, yes, there are anthem protests. Um, in, in fact, you know, my father would often talk about uh, how um, uncomfortable it was at times for him to stand for the national anthem. Um, Jackie Robinson wrote in his biography uh, that he could no longer stand for the national anthem. Um, Rose Robinson, who was a great track athlete in the 1950s, uh, uh, she refused um, to stand for the national anthem. So there are protests for the national anthem. But in this case, Colin Kaepernick was using the anthem as a platform for his protest. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, after that, then people started to look at the uh, latter lyrics of the, um, of the national anthem which, um, uh, uh, you know, were, uh, which supported, um, which, which called for the, uh, 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 which called for the arrest and, um, uh, and jailing of, 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 uh, the progeny of enslaved Africans who would go to fight for the crown against the U S. Um, and would point out, uh, Francis Scott Key's, uh, views about slavery, his position on slavery. And then they would, Use that as a reason to protest against the anthem, but so yes, yeah, you can do you, you can do both. No, yeah, uh, but to the point, your point, Colin Kaepernick was not doing a uh, anthem protest. Very good point. No. All right, since we're on the subject of football, 
Uh, let's talk about the movie that you produced. It has to do with your beloved Washington football team. We won't say the name. Uh, right. And I, I, I've struggled with this one for a long time, Kevin. I think I go back to the yeah. 80s. I just could not understand w why, you know, uh, right. the NFL would put up with that. And I, you, you're a diehard Washington fan. I can't stand the franchise just. Just put that out there. I've right. never liked that team. <laughs> I've never liked that particular team for a whole oh, bunch what of years. What a game Bill Green had against the Bears in the playoffs. Oh, returning that punt. Oh, God. Still took it to the house. Oh, that's fantastic. Go ahead. Anyway, that's part of the reason uh, I can't stand that team. But, I mean, all right. Maybe some of there's uh, some listeners out there who don't know the name of the team, uh, so right. uh, they are the Redskins. That's their name. Right. I do not know how the NFL could tolerate a team named. Right. I just don't under. I can't comprehend that. Um, right. You have kind of an evolution yeah. on this subject, didn't uh, didn't you? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I mean, as you said, I mean, I grew up, I grew up here in the city. Uh, my family had season tickets. Um, you know, I, you know, I didn't go to church on Sundays. I went, I went to the skin game. Um, I mean, there was nothing more I liked uh, in sports than uh, football Sunday to watch, watch them play. And uh, it wasn't until um, they were in their last Super Bowl in 1992 up in Minneapolis. And I actually went as a fan. The only time I've ever been to the Super Bowl as a fan. And uh, I'm I'm walking into the the, the dome, and uh, there's a commotion on a street corner. And I go over to check out the commotion, and it's some people who are identifying themselves as native. Pretty large group, and they are protesting the name of the team as being a racial slur. And I've never really heard that. And I'm decked out in burgundy and gold and singing the, the Hail to the Team song. And, and uh, I was like, okay, that's interesting. Let's go. Beat the bill. <laughs> and um, I didn't really think about it too much more until a few years later, I was writing a column about um, uh, Midland Lee High School, which is in the Panhandle of Texas. I was working for the Dallas Morning News then. And Midland Lee, as the Lee might suggest to you, is named after Robert E. Lee. And it's a high school that's drenched in all things Confederacy. Um, and some of the biggest football stars at the school were black. And the NAACP and some of the uh, black parents um, were protesting against the school to get rid of that imagery because it was a front, obviously, it was a front to black people. And they didn't want their kids scoring touchdowns for for the Robert E. Lee Rebels. Um, and I could easily identify with that, right? And then as I was writing the column, I started to think about what Native folks were saying in in Minnesota when I was there. And I started to put, I started to connect the dots. I started to think about it in context. And that's when I realized that you know what. This is the same boat 
one of us just happens to be in one part of the boat and the other folks are in the other part of the boat. And this is the exact same argument. And it was at that time, that was mid nineties that I started to try and cleanse my palate of the word and started to try and erase, uh, erase it from any copy that I would write. And it was really hard to do. It was really hard to do. I mean, I wanted to do it, but it was such a natural reaction. I mean, it was like breathing. It was, it was like oxygen to me. It was like exhale, right? Um, so I really had to work at getting it out. And I didn't make any grand pronouncement like journalists would years later that I'm no longer using the name. I just tried to get it out of my get it out of my system. And then every now and then I would write about it and question, as you did, um, you know, how can we how can we support this <laughs> in 19 whatever in the years 2000 whatever? How can this how can this be possible? Um, and so in 2014, um, when it looked like it looked like a trademark case, everything was going to fall in the favor of those of us who wanted to eradicate the name. Uh, was about to happen. Um, I saddled up with a friend of mine who's a filmmaker. I said, "We got to document this." So we started working on it then, and um, since then we've been married to um, Aviva Kempster Film Company here in, in D.C. The Kessler Foundation. Aviva Kempster is—I don't know if you've ever met Aviva. You probably seen some of her films, but she makes documentary films about Jewish heroes and heroines. Um, her last film, her last film was called, uh, I think it's The Spy Behind Home Plate, which is about Mo Bird, a mm-hmm. uh, great Jewish catcher who, on the side, was a spy for the, uh, uh, for what would become the CIA um, during, uh, during World War II and the run-up to World War II. So um, she fell in love with it because she sees the owner of the team, Daniel Snyder, who is Jewish, as an anti-Jewish hero because he refuses to change the name of the team. And yep. so that's what we're working on. I think we've got a lot of momentum right now. Yeah, so it's not ready to be seen yet, the movie. It's not ready to be seen, but if you go to our um, website, mm-hmm. uh, Imagining the Indian, um, you can uh, see the trailer, the three-minute trailer, which is up. Uh, and we also have a 17-minute uh, work in progress that will be released shortly. Well, I would say this to Roger Goodell, who the head of the NFL. And uh, yeah. I remember when it um, it came out, what that uh, what was his name? Donald Sterling or Sperling? I always get the middle initial. Donald Sterling. Sterling Correct. was mm-hmm. just an, a, a complete and total and utter bigot. And he was the owner of the right. Los Angeles Clippers, and he, he was taped making some really disparaging remarks about, uh, I think, Magic Johnson, the, the, the yep. star of yep. L.A. Uh, and was it Adam Silver, who was the head of the NBA at the time? Uh, within Adam I, Silver had just taken over. Yeah. Yep, he, he had just taken over. I would say uh, uh, Spurley was out of the uh, NBA within, I want to say, three months. I could have the time. I could have it wrong. But yeah. It, I, it was yeah, pretty the fast. Reaction, the, the reaction was overnight. Yep. Yeah. So yep. here's what I say to Cadell. You're the man in charge. To, you can order Snyder to change that name. 
And why you don't do that, I do not know. You know, actions speak louder than words. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he works at the behest of the owner. And there, there is no momentum, no inertia among the owners to change the name. And they, you know, they pay him, what, $44 million a year or something like that um, to steer the ship. And he has steered the ship as clear of this topic um, as possible. But, you know, it takes, it takes, um, it, it, it takes courage from people beyond, you know, um, you know, I have tried over the years to get players who could in some way have some influence on this issue to say something, and they won't. You know, Colin Kaepernick has said nothing about it. In fact, um, he had considered uh, his, his name popped up as a possible quarterback option here in Washington. And I, I wrote a column then saying that he, he can't take this job. Not if, not if he is who we, we think he is, who he's made us believe he is. If he's about social justice, he can't take it. He can't take a job. Um, Sam Bradford, when he was a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback at Oklahoma, um, uh, was celebrated in, on Oklahoma reservation um, because he had a pretty significant uh, percentage of his family was native. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I called up Sam's family um, before the draft and asked if he would, um, you know, if he would say that he, he would never play for this team because it was an insult to his heritage. Sam's never said anything about it. So, you know, this is, you know, athletes, um, I get easily frustrated with that um, because they, they, they know they have this platform. Um, they know they have power that they can wield as a collective. And really, they rarely do. Mm-hmm. Even, even with the whole Colin Kaepernick situation since August of 2016, except for the one weekend when, when several hundred players bandied together to denounce Donald Trump having called them sons of bitches, you could have counted on your hands and toes, on your, on your fingers and toes, how many players had actually done something demonstrative like Colin Kaepernick in denouncing police lethality against uh, black men in this country. So um, they have a long ways to go uh, uh, collectively as well in terms of in terms of speaking out and using the platform that they had to bring about change. If, if enough football players said they would not play for the franchise, but they find this disrespectful, disrespectful um, on a, in the NFL. Yeah. But they haven't done that. All right, Kevin, we better get out of here. I'll run out of time, and there's a whole bunch of things uh, that I didn't even get around to talking about. So I guess we're just going to have yeah, to. We play. always miss talking about LeBradford Smith. I don't know how. <laughs> you always, we always end this show. <laughs> Uh, yeah, LeFra- never get to Bradford Smith. Well, or Vince Evans. With the Vince Evans discussion, we didn't get to that. Oh, that's right, Vince uh, Evans. Uh, oh. We'll get to all that stuff. We'll bring you back. Uh, the, the NBA season starting up again, so some little sports for us to talk about. Uh, we could talk about your beloved <laughs> Northwestern Wildcats 
and plenty of political oh, stuff. Oh, wow, Kat. That's right. So that's Kevin Blackstone from the Washington Post, University of Maryland, ESPN. Uh, thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, stay safe, all right? Thanks, man. That's the great Kevin Blackstone. All right, we uh, went a little long with that one, but I love talking with Kevin, so all is well in the universe. We have an update before we get out of here. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Tina Svondelis. What's going on, Tina? Uh, I know you listen to this show. All right, uh, I actually don't know if you listen to this show at all. All right, anyway, this story. Uh, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raul announced today that he has tested positive for COVID-19. Wow, that's... Raul said he began experiencing minor symptoms over the weekend and tested positive for the coronavirus on Monday. Raul is uh, the highest ranking Illinois politician known to have contracted COVID-19. He said, quote, I have been self-isolating since the onset of my symptoms, and I will continue to do so in accordance with guidance, uh, guidance from my doctor and public health authorities. Additionally, we are in the process of notifying individuals I may have come in contact with so that they can self-isolate uh, and seek guidance. Stay safe. Uh, that's really um, sad to hear that. I hope he gets better. Good man. hope he gets better. All right, guys, that's the show. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. D. I want to thank Kevin Blackstone, my philosopher. We had a lot of great conversation, uh, and none of it would have been possible without the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. As Kevin Blackstone and Maya can both tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Don't forget to download those Benny J bonus interviews, all right, at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. And also, part two of the show, we're going to record after we're done here, and it's going to be available for download as well. Uh, Joshua Smizer De Leon and the return of our good friend Adolfo Mondragon. Boy, he has a filthy mouth, and you'll probably hear that if you download it tonight. problems become big problems when you let small problems sit. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. That's correct.